Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The administration pledges billions to make the electricity grid smart. It could cut our utility bills, slash our greenhouse gas emissions, and prevent power outages. They have sensors on the transformers that record temperature. So if a transformer is getting hot, the control center can see that and route the power around that transformer before it blows. Building the smart grid. And the quest for a battery big enough to store renewable energy for times when there's not enough sun or wind. It would have enormous capacity and it'd be cheap to build. Storage is critical, but the storage has to be scalable. It has to be big, not a whole bunch of cell phone batteries strung together like Christmas tree lights. Also the sweet sadness of autumn. That and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. President Obama has been crisscrossing the country, talking up clean energy. At the country's largest solar power plant in Arcadia, Florida, the president delivered $3.4 billion worth of grants to update electricity transmission and create what's called a smart grid to increase efficiency and promote energy-saving choices for consumers. We can imagine the day when you'll be able to charge the battery on your plug-in hybrid car at night because your smart meter reminded you that nighttime electricity is cheapest. In the daytime, when the sun is at its strongest, Solar panels like these and electricity stored in car batteries will be able to power the grid with affordable, emission-free energy. Boulder, Colorado has already partnered with the utility company Xcel Energy to pioneer the smart grid in homes. Kara Mertz works for the city of Boulder as manager of the project. Uh, Kara, what does a home on the smart grid look like? It looks like a normal home, but what you see is you see programmable thermostats on the walls, and those programmable thermostats are controlled through a website. So the homeowner in that house can go online, and they can say, during the hours of 2 p.m. and 8 p.m., please turn my thermostat down 4 degrees since that is when the power is most expensive. So you could program the temperature of your home when your appliances come on and off in that home. So, for example, if you know that you work during the day and you don't need your plasma TV on standby all day long, but you want it to turn on at like 4 o'clock so when you come home at 5, you could just flip it on and it's already warmed up, then you can program that through this website as well. Let's say that I've set up my circuits there so that my dishes get washed in the off-peak hour, but I get a phone call, my mother-in-law is coming over, and all those dishes, which would wait until really late tonight, I need to get them washed now. Can I just get the dishwasher going? Actually, yes, and there's manual overrides for any of the appliances or thermostats, so you don't actually have to go back on the web if you want to manually override the settings. And there's some programs that Excel is 
going to be piloting here where you can program this to say, I don't want my electricity bill to be more than $100 a month. So warn me, you know, when I'm at the 75% point and I can adjust my usage so that I know I could depend on $100 per month electricity bill. What is Excel Energy doing with the information that they're getting from this process, managing the smart grid? Some of the things that they're doing is efficiently matching their supply with their demand. The other part of it is to minimize their operational costs by sensing outages before they happen. They have sensors on the transformers that record temperature. So if a transformer is getting hot, the control center can see that and route the power around that transformer before it blows. Whereas right now, the way that they sense outages is they sit around essentially waiting for someone to call and a customer calls up and says, my electricity is out. And they say, thank you very much. And they make note um, in their outage system of your address. And then they sit around and wait for someone else to call. Once, you know, 10 or 15 people have called and said, hey, my electricity is out, then they could say, hmm, it looks like maybe it's this transformer over here that's out because we see the pattern of who's calling us. We better send a truck out. And that's like a 20 minute or one hour long process. Whereas now, as soon as that person calls, they could look online and they could say, oh, it looks like all the systems are working to your home. Are you sure that your circuit isn't just blown in your house? Kara Mertz, tell me, do you have one of these gizmos in your own house? I don't yet. We have a smart meter on our home, but we don't have any of the advanced in-home energy management tools yet. I'm hoping for an all-electric vehicle that I could then charge from and discharge to back to the grid in 2010. Wait a second. Your electric car discharged back to the grid? Yeah. The idea is that if there's a high enough concentration of electric cars or hybrid electric vehicles that are plugged into the grid, Excel can draw power that's stored in the batteries of those cars in times of peak energy demand. The vision is that each car would have an individual IP address, much like your computer does. And so it wouldn't matter where you were plugged in. Excel would recognize your vehicle and credit your electricity bill. So even though your pilot project is still in its infancy, what are you hopeful about for the future of the smart grid? I'm hopeful about the promise of putting power back into the hands of the consumer. Because really, electricity is so ethereal to most people. It's invisible. You kind of don't know how much it costs on a day-to-day basis or an hour-by-hour basis. And you don't really know if it's coal you're causing to be burned or solar power that you're drawing from. And so I think this would allow us all to know our power as individuals and know where it's coming from. Kara Mertz is the project manager for the city of Boulder, Colorado's Smart Grid Project. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, the Obama administration also wants the power that Smart Grid carries to come from cleaner sources. The Department of Energy just announced the first recipients of $400 million in grants designed to push the boundaries of energy research. The winners are a mix of small technology companies and some of the country's biggest research universities, like Penn State, Stanford, and MIT. I visited MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where President Obama issued this challenge to engineers and scientists. From China to India, from Japan to Germany, nations everywhere are racing to develop new ways to produce and use energy. The nation that wins this competition will be the nation that leads the global economy. I am convinced of that. And I want America to be that nation. It's that simple. 
But just after the speech, I caught up with MIT President Susan Hockfield and asked what she thinks it will take to meet President Obama's goal. The problem we face in this country is there's been a roller coaster of support. It goes up when oil prices go up, it goes down when gas prices drop. And with that kind of roller coaster, the problem is you always end up at the starting gate. And so in order to really create an energy revolution, we need sustained, uh, sustained commitment to uh, energy R&D funding. Hockfield's encouraged by the administration's new approach to energy research. It's modeled on the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA, as it's known, made long-shot bets in high-risk research. And it gave us things like body armor and the Internet. Three years ago, a National Academy of Sciences paper called for the same kind of program for energy research, an ARPA-E. That paper was written by a Nobel-winning physicist named Stephen Chu. If you look at what the United States has, it has unarguably the greatest research and development centers in the world, in our universities, our national labs, and in the private sector. And so once we get this great innovation machine geared and going, we would be invincible. But the only trouble is, let's get it going. Now, of course, he's Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. And thanks to money from the Economic Stimulus Act, he's awarding the first ARPA-E grants. 3,600 scientists applied for the first round, just 37 were approved. The winners include ideas for improving biofuels. Others aim to capture carbon dioxide emissions. And some of the winners are looking for breakthroughs in batteries. And that brings us back to MIT. Down in the well-worn basement labs of MIT's Building Number Eight, Don Sadaway shows me his winning idea for a liquid metal battery. The materials chemistry professor has been at MIT three decades. Now the seven million dollar grant will help him scale up his latest project. He slips his hands into the black sleeves of an airless glove box, where some of the batteries, now solid at room temperature, have been cut in half. So here's, here's one of them. So you can see the upper layer here. There's liquid, uh-huh. liquid metal that was at the top. Uh-huh. This granular stuff is um, the electrolyte, which is a molten salt. And you can see a second shiny zone at the bottom here, which is the second liquid layer. And it's self-assembled, self-separated. There's no divider, no separator here. So, so when this heats up, these metals kind of sort themselves out because they, they're different density. Is that the deal? Exactly. You have two factors here. One is all three liquids are of different density. Okay? And the second thing that's equally as important, they're emissible, just like oil and water, because I don't want to put any separators in here. That's the virtue of it, because it has no separator. It's wherever you have a solid and a battery, solid means slow diffusion. Professor Sadaway wanted fast diffusion, and he got it, with molten metals that very quickly charge and discharge. He's cagey about the exact ingredients. He calls it the special sauce. But he says they're readily available in the U.S. His demo batteries are the size of the Fresca soda cans he sips during lectures. One day, he hopes they could be big enough to be batteries for the electric grid, providing the storage that clean power, like solar and wind, need. And so storage is critical. But the storage has to be scalable. It has to be big. Not a whole bunch of cell phone batteries strung together like Christmas tree lights. So this little thing we're looking in here fits in your hand. Right. You could make that as big as... As big as this laboratory. You could have a single cell that is the size of this laboratory. So we could be up to our knees in 
that metal that I won't name on the bottom, and then maybe up to our waist in the molten salt, and then a little bit higher up with the magnesium alloy, and it would have enormous capacity, and it'd be cheap to build. So they're going to be storing the, the renewable energy that we produce, and then you're going to even out that problem with the, the intermittency of solar or wind. That's the, that's the vision. Exactly. You got it. That's it exactly. It's still more concept than product, and it might not work at the size needed. That's the whole idea of the ARPA-E granting program. This is swing-for-the-fences science. Many projects will miss, but if just a few hit, they become what Secretary Chu calls transformational technology. And Professor Sadway doesn't need to look far for inspiration. Well, when we walk down the hallway to get to my lab, we walk underneath what was the radiation laboratory during World War II. So radar was first uh, developed there. If you go back to the 1950s, there was a, a fellow over in um, electrical engineering by the name of Forrester, and he came up with uh, the memory of the first mainframe computers. Those are inventions that have enormous impact. And you, you think a, uh, a transformational piece might roll out of here? I'm going to give it my best shot. We've got good people. It's a career with meaning. And I think that's what inspires people most. They want to work on this. They want to make a difference. And if you've got good people and you get properly resourced, you've got a really good chance of making a difference. You can learn more about Professor Don Sadaway's liquid metal batteries and the other energy grant winners at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, why the climate change bill dare not speak its name. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. If you're interested in the climate change legislation currently on Capitol Hill, don't try the phrase climate change in your text search or global warming. You won't find those words in the titles. The House-passed version is the American Clean Energy and Security Act. The Senate's considering the Clean Energy Jobs and American Power Act. With the big U.N. climate change meeting coming in Copenhagen in December, Democratic leaders are eager to find the right words to sell their approach, both at home and abroad. That's the sort of wordsmithing they often get from George Lakoff, the Berkeley linguist and the longtime Democratic strategist. Professor Lakoff, uh, please explain why Democrats think they can pass a climate change bill when the words climate change are barely mentioned. Well, the easiest way to, to think about this is what the Pew Foundation found when it did its latest poll, which is that fewer people, quote, believe that uh, climate change is real and caused by human beings. And as a result, the administration has decided not to uh, worry about that, not to take that on and uh, have the debate over whether it's real, but just to assume it's real and go on. Okay, that Pew poll is just one poll, though. So what else is really guiding this framing decision? Uh, you know, one of our producers here said, you know, this, this, is, this discussion is being framed with an absent center. It's like uh, a donut we're walking around here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you might ask another question. Why should the Pew poll results have come? Why should fewer people believe in the reality of uh, global warming, climate change? And the answer to that is that 
The conservative message machine has been going night and day on this while uh, the Democrats have been talking about health care. So, you know, the public uh, in at least independent and Republican districts have heard all over, over and over again that, you know, this isn't real. So they decided not to debate that. And uh, they're just going to go ahead and uh, play their cards, the cards that they think that will get a bill passed. In your view, what are the odds that this bill is going to succeed? Some people would say, oh, I'm going to have to count it out now. I don't see it succeeding before Copenhagen. And I think that's part of the administration's ideas. I think what they want is to go to Copenhagen with bipartisan support for something or other. And if they have something or other that they can claim is a victory, then they have some moral authority in Copenhagen. So Mr. Obama walks into Copenhagen with perhaps, what, some sort of agreement, some sort of committee passage of, of, of legislation, and the House has passed something. How do you frame that as progress uh, enough to convince the international community that the U.S. is really serious about dealing with climate change? You say, we are uh, about to pass a bill. We have a slow democratic process, but it is happening. You pick out the parts of the bill that look the best, and you put them forward, and you uh, say, um, we're going to do this. We're going to pass the bill. We're going to make it better over the years, and um, we want to work with you. Very simple. That's what he's going to say. And if President Obama were to choose not to go to Copenhagen, how could he frame that for the world and for America? I think he couldn't. I don't see it any possibility of his not going to Copenhagen. It, it just looks so bad, both nationally, where he's saying, I can't lead, he looks weak, and internationally, he looks weak. So, George Lakoff, you're a linguist. You understand how we communicate with each other. What is it about the human condition that makes it so hard to talk about a slow-moving, yet, as science tells us, ultimately a fairly deadly phenomenon known as climate disruption? Linguists have studied languages all over the world, and every language has a way to express causation. But that causation is always direct. It's like, um, you know, I pick up this uh, cup of coffee. That's direct causation. Climate change isn't like that. It happens all over the world. It's a matter of a system, a system working, because that is the central problem. People think in terms of direct causation. The phenomenon is systemic causation. So... Here, here, here's the question. Uh, what language is better suited uh, for communicating systemic causation? Or is this part of the human condition? It's part of the human condition. There's no language better suited for speaking of systemic causation. They all have direct causation. And I suppose it is a human condition, right? I mean, it's very hard to link the extra item on one's plate to something that appears around our waist or handing over the credit card and the bill that will arrive later in the mail. You've got it. And moreover, the same problem is there in the economy. You have short-term greed, and the assumption is short-term greed is good. If everybody around the world is greedy in the short term, then we'll all be better off. We have the same problem in both the ecology and the economy. Short-term greed has created the problem over a very long time all over the earth, and we don't have a comprehensive way of thinking about systemic risk and systemic causation. Democratic strategist George Lakoff teaches at the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you so much, George, for taking this time. It's always a pleasure to be here. The country's industrial wastelands could get new life as a source of clean energy. 
The EPA has identified thousands of old brownfield sites that might be developed for renewable energy, like wind, solar, and geothermal. Soji Adelages studied the sites in Michigan, where he directs the Land Policy Institute at Michigan State University. Professor Adelages, uh, why look to brownfields for green energy? Well, some of our old industrial states, and indeed across the nation, have this huge inventory of brownfields that were used for manufacturing and different types of processes in the past. They had adequate connection to the grid. They had power infrastructure well in place. Their uh, transportation-wise, they're very well connected. So much of the infrastructure for industrial activity to take place already surrounds many of these places. And the broader infrastructure, roads and so on and so forth, to move the turbines in and move the solar panels in are already in place. On the other hand, uh, there's an opportunity with the renewed interest in the nation in renewable energy to apply renewable energy on some of the sites, um, create green jobs. So there's some tremendous opportunities associated with brownfield sites. So these former industrial sites, these brownfield sites, they have a lot going for them. But do they have the energy? Do they have the wind? Do they get the sun needed to, to make renewable energy happen? Indeed, that was the essence of our investigation in Michigan. We needed to understand where these um, uh, brownfields were located and the sizes of those brownfields. So what we did in our analysis was to, to look at the locations of the sites, measure the wind readings at those sites, also look at solar resource capacity in those sites, and then correlated those with the sizes of this parcel to be able to figure out just how much energy can be generated from these parcels. And we came up with numbers that actually surprised us. Uh, Michigan, for example, statewide could generate about 4,300 megawatts of uh, power using coupled wind solar array systems. So 4,300 megawatts, that, that's kind of like having a, the equivalent of a whole fleet of, uh, I don't know, eight or nine coal-fired power plants, isn't it? Absolutely. And one other way to look at this is that in the case of Michigan, we estimated that this is enough power to power about 40 to 45 percent of the homes in Michigan. So it, we're talking substantive amount of uh, energy and power being generated. Now, are there places where this is already happening? Do you have examples of brownfields making green energy? Well, there are a couple of that, that come to mind. Uh, in the case of uh, wind energy, the old Bethlehem steel plant in Lackawanna, New York, is now um, a wind farm. In the case of solar, there's the um, old former landfill in Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, these are two examples. And I understand that as popular as uh, some forms of renewable energy are in the uh, broad sense, that there is a bit of uh, nimbyism, as it's called, not in my backyard, when it comes to actually putting a wind or other renewable energy facility somewhere. Do you have examples of that? Some of the communities are already dealing with a major challenge, uh, visual blight, contamination, and so uh, a windmill or a solar array right next door may not be as challenging for them as they would find a brownfield facility that's underutilized. Windmills are not blight, by the way. Uh, I've traveled around the nation and uh, looked at some of these solar farms and uh, wind farms. I think they're beautiful to behold, but there are people who have uh, a challenge with it. 
Now, often these uh, these old industrial sites, uh, these are in lower income communities, communities of color. Uh, what's in it for those neighborhoods if these are redeveloped? Well, definitely green jobs and the potential to be employed in the building and development of uh, this renewable energy facilities. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But secondly, because many of the sites are owned by the government in some of these communities or the leadership in some of these communities, it's a lot easier to structure opportunities to build uh, an energy trust fund that proceeds from land leases and the sale of the land can then be put into, say, economic development support funding in the community. To hear you lay this out, it seems like a no-brainer. Why haven't we been doing this already? We were slow to realizing the challenge that we face as a nation in securitizing our energy supply, and I think the nation has finally woken up. I have to say that national policy, while supportive, has never really been aggressive in support of renewable energy. Remember 30 years ago, the United States was uh, one of the leaders in the world in renewable energy. And our national policies for a long time were not as aggressive as what the Europeans were doing. The Europeans are way ahead of us now. But there's no doubt in my mind that uh, we will eventually catch up. I think the goals that are being discussed in Congress with uh, legislation that's being considered now are very aggressive. I think we're thinking more appropriately about sustainability and carbon footprint now. And so that favors renewable energy. Soji Adelaja directs the Land Policy Institute for Michigan State University. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Dunkard Creek, along the West Virginia-Pennsylvania border, once drew crowds of fishermen and boaters, until September, when almost all the aquatic creatures living in the creek died. Regulators blamed the fish kill on a bloom of toxic golden algae fueled by pollution from nearby coal mines and gas drilling sites. This is the first time they've documented the invasive golden algae in the region. And as Erica Peterson of West Virginia Public Broadcasting reports, the same pollution that fed the bloom in Dunkard Creek could help the algae spread across the Mid-Atlantic. Until recently, Dunkard Creek was teeming with life with more than 160 species of fish, mussels, salamanders, and crayfish. But in September, a massive fish kill eliminated nearly every living thing in this creek, which winds 38 miles back and forth across the Mason-Dixon line. Fresh water's coming in. Jesse Graham walks along the banks of Dunkard Creek the morning after the fish kill in mid-September. Dead fish line the banks. Buzzards circle overhead. Oh, have you ever been around the uh, ocean where they're doing crabs and so on, and they're old and decaying? That's what it smells like. Graham has lived on the banks of Dunkard Creek since 1970 and says it's always seemed to be a healthy stream until now. I had a deer come up the driveway, I think looking for water, because I've never had deer come up the driveway like that. They probably were used to drinking in the Dunkard and... It wasn't there, or they knew it wasn't fit to drink. They were looking. Now, Dunkard Creek is a rusty color, and regulators in West Virginia say golden algae killed the ecosystem. Golden algae have been found in southern and southwestern states and are typically found in freshwater areas with a high salt content. 
Officials don't know how the invasive algae got into Dunkard Creek, but believe it flourished because of massive amounts of salty pollution from coal mines and gas drilling. Randy Huffman is the head of the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. He says a lot of different factors contributed to the toxic bloom. The algae is the culprit, but the water temperature and the sunlight and the makeup of the water from the mine drainages, we think, has worked together to create the perfect storm for this algae. This perfect storm was partly made possible by negligence on the part of Huffman's agency as well as others. The pollution can be traced back to mining company Consol Energy. Consol is the nation's fifth largest coal producer and contributes more than $500 million a year to West Virginia's economy. It operates in five other states. For years, Consol has been releasing chloride and other pollutants into Dunkard Creek from two separate mines, and the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection let them. Starting in 2002, the DEP issued three orders allowing Consol to violate the Federal Clean Water Act as it looked for a way to control the pollution. While at a talk on business ethics, Consol spokesman Joe Serenzia says his company's discharge was harmless until the algae were added into the mix. For the past how many years, the fish were fine, and all of the aquatic life in Dunkard Creek were surviving just fine. Um, it's this additional uh, element that was put in there that has changed the dynamics of that, that whole situation. The situation was complicated by the fact that Dunkard Creek crosses state lines, with two states and the Federal Environmental Protection Agency overseeing pollution. Currently, Consol has a permit from the EPA to dispose of salty wastewater from a Pennsylvania gas drilling operation into one of the West Virginia mines that discharge into Dunkard Creek. The EPA ordered Consol to stop injections last month. The residents who live along Dunkard Creek had no idea how polluted it was becoming until it was too late. Dunkard Creek is a member of the family. Betty Wiley is the president of the Dunkard Creek Watershed Association, a local nonprofit that promotes the importance of the watershed. It's grief. It's real grief. Like a member of the family died, only you can't bury this one. It's still there, and you have to do something about it, try to bring it back to life. In a park along the Mason-Dixon line, Wiley looks at old photographs of the creek. One shows her father smoking a pipe and holding his day's fishing catch, seven fish. Now Wiley worries other streams across the country could suffer the same fate. I think it's national in scope. It's, it's a huge environmental disaster, really. When did you ever know of a 38-mile-long ecosystem being just totally wiped out? Totally. Everything's dead. The factors that made Dunkard Creek an ideal golden algae habitat, like large amounts of chlorides and other pollutants, are replicated throughout the state and the region. Now that we know that it's the golden algae that's actually doing the killing of the fish, we need to figure out why... Scott Mandarola oversees water programs with the West Virginia DEP. In a presentation about the fish kill to state legislators, he points to a list of 20 other streams and rivers ripe for algae blooms. Now that golden algae has made its way north... He says it's possible it could invade other similar watersheds in other states, like the north branch of the Potomac River in Maryland and West Virginia. 
We don't know exactly how the algae got here. We don't know if it's been here for a while or if it just came in in the last year or so. Our concern is because we're not clear on how it transports, if it does transport to another ecosystem that has a conducive environment, we could see a similar bloom. Once it's in a waterway, golden algae are nearly impossible to eliminate. In West Virginia, the DEP now wants to lower the pollution levels in these streams to make them more hospitable to green algae, which isn't toxic and could prevent the spread of its golden cousin. But first, state and federal regulators have to do something they haven't so far, put tighter pollution controls in place and enforce them. For Living on Earth, I'm Erica Peterson in Charleston, West Virginia. Coming up, new rules for energy-guzzling TVs in the Golden State. Don't touch that dial. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. So do you know what single appliance in your home uses the most electricity? If you said the refrigerator, you'd be right 30 years ago. But today, beyond temperature control and lighting, your big flat-screen TV could be the most energy-thirsty appliance. Now the California Energy Commission plans to put televisions on an energy diet, with new TV efficiency standards similar to those set for refrigerators three decades ago. The California Commission could vote on the proposed regulations as early as November 4th. Mark Lifshire from the Los Angeles Times joins us now to explain what's on the table. Hello there, Mark. Hello. So what will these new proposed rules say? They'll set definite standards for electricity consumption for televisions, and that would include uh, LCDs, the old standard cathode ray tubes, if they're still around, and uh, plasma TVs and rear projection TVs. Uh, the standards will kick in in 2011, and then they'll become more stringent in 2013. For now, it'll only affect TVs 58 inches and smaller. Now, what's different about this from, say, the Energy Star program? Uh, the Energy Star program is a federal program. It's uh, voluntary, and it's a means of informing consumers through large tags and information showing what are the most energy-efficient products of that type available in the store. California's rules, when they're passed, will be mandatory, and uh, no TV that doesn't comply will be able to be sold after the dates that it goes into effect. So why is California making this rule now? California, after studying this issue for a couple of years, came to the conclusion that uh, television and related equipment like uh, TiVos and uh, DVD players now account for about 10% of household electrical use. And that's up from 2 to 3% just a decade ago. And it's a very, very fast-growing segment. And uh, they figure they could limit it now before it... Uh, gets larger. So what kind of savings are we talking about in terms of energy and in terms of, of money? 
the commission estimates that the saving will be $912 million in the uh, first year. It'll be about $30 per television set, and they estimate that uh, it will save $8.1 billion over the first 10 years, and it will eliminate the need to spend about $650 million to build at least one uh, large gas-fired power plant. And, uh, Mark, if I walked into a TV store today, how many of those being sold would meet the likely California standards? The manufacturers say there are already uh, scores of TVs that do meet the standards for 2011 and even some that meet them for 2013, which is more stringent. And the manufacturers, including industry leader Vizio of Irvine, California, they say they'll have no problem meeting or exceeding the standards at the dates that they kick in. Some other manufacturers are a bit more skittish. They, in general, don't like the idea of regulations. They'd rather just do it on their own and allow innovation to take its course, and they, they argue that the efficiency will come no matter what. You don't need government rules. So what's in this for consumers? Well, they'll save on their electric bills every month, and they'll get a TV that's uh, just as good in quality as the ones now and maybe better with the natural innovation that's going on. And uh, other than that, it shouldn't affect them at all. Now, if California has this standard, what about uh, folks going to nearby states, say, you know, driving over to Nevada to, to get a TV that doesn't have these restrictions, might be a bit cheaper? Would jobs be lost? Uh, what about the sales tax revenues for the state? It's conceivable that some people living near the borders with our neighbors will go and buy TVs that might not be compliant with California, and there could be some loss of sales tax. But it's unlikely that people are going to travel far. Nevada is pretty far away from the population centers of California. Now, what will this do to the price of televisions? The LCD, the Liquid Crystal Display Television Manufacturers Association, has said in a letter to the commission that they don't expect it to affect price at all. And indeed, prices have been coming down over the years, and that may continue. California is, what, the uh, eighth uh, or so largest economy in the world? Uh, and when you're that big, you can kind of throw your weight around in the regulatory arena. What do these new standards effectively mean for the rest of us who don't live in California? California has a long history of uh, imposing efficiency standards on appliances, whether they're air conditioners or refrigerators, insulation for your house. They're soon to do it on cars. And uh, those have quickly spread to other states who virtually picked up the California laws and passed them almost word for word. Uh, manufacturers are not going to want to make different kinds of TVs for different parts of the U.S. market. And eventually, They'll all be the same, and they'll all meet California and other states, presumably standards. So this is yet another example. California is being, what, up front when it comes to energy efficiency? Uh, yes, and California has a good record. Uh, over the last 30 years, per capita electricity usage has been flat here because of these efficiency standards, while it's gone up 40 to 50 percent in the rest of the country. So California obviously is getting a lot out of every electron. In other words, a megawatt saved is a megawatt earned? A megawatt saved is a megawatt you don't have to create greenhouse gas and uh, pollution to produce and spend a lot of money producing. Mark Lifshire writes for the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much, sir. You're welcome. If you want to have fun, come home with me. You can stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year, this year. TV is the thing this year. Radio was great, now it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. Last night I... 
On the 2nd of October, the worlds of birding and giant vegetables lost a champion. Hugh Weiberg was renowned in New England for his prowess in nurturing mighty pumpkins and his devotion to birds. His stillness and persistence won him a rare skill, and he wrote a book about it, Hand-Feeding Backyard Birds. In the year 2000, I visited the Ipswich River Wildlife Sanctuary with him to find out how he won the trust of his flighty friends. Here's a portion of our story from back then with bird lover Hugh Weiberg. Human beings have been conditioned since early childhood to believe that wild birds are going to stay clear of human beings. And for the most part, that's true. But what I've discovered by wandering through various wildlife sanctuaries in Massachusetts is that if you have a lot of patience and can take the time, you can condition the birds to take feed right out of your hand. So they get to know you. You become exactly. their buddies. You become their buddies. Okay, well, what are we going to do now? Tell me what we All right, we're going to take a walk down into an area in this sanctuary where the birds have pretty much come to expect that when Weiberg walks into the sanctuary, they're going to get a free snack. And I've found, doing a lot of experimenting, that the wild birds, particularly the common birds that we see in this area, the nuthatches and the chickadees and the uh, tufted titmice, they love walnut meats. And I'm holding in my hand right now lots of little bits of walnut meat. And with any luck at all, we're going to have some company this morning as we wander down into the sanctuary. Okay, well, let's go. Now we're coming into an area of pine trees here where I usually am greeted by a small group of chickadees who are looking for their morning handout. Will they be scared by us talking? They will not be scared if we talk while they're around. Their hearing mechanisms are decidedly different than ours. I, I think they're on a much higher frequency than we are. I'm not at all sure that they even hear us uh, when we talk. Now let's stand here for just a minute and see if any of these guys are aware of my presence yet. I'll be very embarrassed if they're uh, a half a mile from here, but we'll see chickadees. Maybe not right in this spot, but we will see them. Good morning, gentlemen, ladies. Anybody looking for a snack here today? Dead silence. <laughs> That's the sound of a black cat chickadee that you just heard. All right, these guys are chattering to themselves about something else, so we're going to continue a little walk a little further down here, and we will encounter some chickadees as we walk down this path over here. How often do you come? Uh, in the wintertime, at least once a week, usually on a Saturday or a Sunday morning. Here we go. See, we've got quite a little family in here that are... They have their own pecking order. They're lining up up there to come in depending on where they stand in the chickadee hierarchy. This one is next. Got a big one. Look at this one. This is amazing. Isn't that fun? Now, Steve, for just a second here, I'm going to put some feed in your hand, and you're going to have one or two of these guys on you before you can say Jack Robinson. Stand right up there close to that shrub. See, now they're a little cautious because you're a stranger to them, but you're with me and they know me. 
And there's a tuft of titmouse up there, by the way. Oh, there comes one. Almost had that titmouse standing on your hand. He chickened out after him. He'll be back. Well, there's a joke. There you go. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and the first one is always the biggest thrill. I'd like to see that titmouse come down and well, stand there. Oh, and another one. Does it hurt the birds to, to feed them like this? Uh, hurt in what sense? Well, um, what if they become dependent? Okay, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. The School of Ornithology at Cornell University did a controlled test on exactly that question. They had two groups of chickadees out in the field, one who were deep in the forest, who had never had any contact with human beings, and another uh, that were close to uh, society and were getting bird food on a regular basis. And the birds that were being fed on a regular basis had their food cut off after six months, the warm summer months. Anyway, the long story short was that both groups of birds showed no uh, drop-off in mortality rates, whether they had uh, contact with humans or whether they did not. So the consensus appears to be that this does not hurt them in any way. Whatever got you started hand-feeding birds? Well, I think what probably attracted my attention in the beginning was I've, I've been feeding birds with my bird feeders back in Wilmington, Mass., for 25 years, and I noticed early on that the chickadees were the very last bird to fly away when I went out to restock the feeders. So I had, once in a great while, I had seen a picture of a black-capped chickadee standing on a human hand, and I decided one day to see where the birds in my backyard seemed to be quite accustomed to my presence, to see if I could actually get one of them on my hand. So I set up a stepladder in the backyard, took the feeder down, put it in the house, and became, in effect, the substitute bird feeder. And after three or four weekends of trying this, in January, I think it was, a chickadee came down and stood on my hand and took some seed. And the, his fellow travelers saw what was happening, and eventually, many of them began to uh, hand feed also. Hugh, before we go... Sure. I just have to ask you about your other life. Okay, and believe me, I do have another life. <laughs> you grow giant pumpkins? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm the director of an esoteric organization here in New England called the New England Pumpkin Growers Association with over 500 members. And we dedicate ourselves in a lighthearted manner to the fine sport hobby of growing these monster giant pumpkins that you see at the fairs every fall. Uh, my personal best pumpkin, largest pumpkin, was a 674-pounder that I grew two years ago that came in fifth in the all-New England fair. That year, there was a 920-pounder grown that came in first place. Hugh Iberg speaking with me in the year 2000. The day after he died, a pumpkin weighing 1,471.6 pounds won the top prize at America's oldest agricultural fair in Topsfield, Massachusetts. Every now and then, I feel as though I've woken up in a Rembrandt etching.
a low-tangled thicket of pen strokes from which a landscape emerges. Commentator Verlin Klinkenborg. It's not so much that the sky has taken on the tint of 17th century drawing paper or that the world has lost its color. It has more to do with the balance of time. I wake up and nature seems to have paused in expectation. There's a numb overcast overhead with little drift to it. Wood smoke slides down the roof and onto the road. The wild apples are waiting to fall. We are all inked in, caught in the moment. It's an appealing illusion. I imagine being the human in one of Rembrandt's landscapes, that small figure standing in front of what looks like a cross between a house and a haystack. He is resting from something. Perhaps he's even looking out from his garden at the artist working in the distance. It took no more ink to draw that figure than it would to write out a simple equation. And yet there's no mistaking his posture or the moment he's given himself to rest, though that moment has now lasted since 1645. That's how it felt this morning, as if time had simply stopped. A crow had paused in the pasture. I counted 15 morning doves resting on a power line. The leaves that were going to fall had fallen, and the oaks were not about to relinquish theirs. The weather seemed to be waiting somewhere off to the west. A flight of birds stirred from the branches and then settled back almost immediately. I heard what sounded like a small dog barking in the distance and realized it was a flock of geese beyond the tree line. They never came into view. Before long, the breeze will stir and rain will begin to fall. The silent anticipation hidden in such a quiet morning will be forgotten. The cry of a red-tailed hawk will unsettle the morning doves, and one by one those wild apples will become windfall. And as the weather changes and the clock resumes its ticking, I'll have to free myself from the artist's ink before it dries completely, step outside, and walk over the hill toward the sound of those distant geese. Verlin Klinkenborg lives on a small farm in New York State, he writes editorials for the New York Times. On the next Living on Earth, 20 years later, a Cold War no-man's land is flourishing. This space used to be totally barren sand with weed killers, and now nature has reclaimed this space, and what their experiment is to cooperate with nature. Where the Berlin Wall once stood, there's now life, art, and music, thanks to squatters. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Jesse Martin, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Thanks this week to WGCU Public Media in Fort Myers, Florida. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. 
and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues the Rockefeller Foundation, and its Campaign for American Workers. More at rockfound.org. And Paxworld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Paxworld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.